So they're here to be refreshed, but uh, I'm blessed that they've also taken some time to share with us and refresh us as well. So keep them in your prayers. But would you welcome up Pastor Brian Newberry, please? Well, I am very, very, very happy to be here. And I'll tell you, you guys are blessed. That worship time, um, wow. I'll tell you, that's not happening everywhere. It, uh, some, some have, you know, the latest high tech and stuff, but that spirit of worship disappeared some, some years back. And uh, man, that was just, uh, the Lord's presence was in it and it was powerful. And it sort of preached my sermon before I preached it, too. <laughs> Very good, great song selection there. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again this morning for drawing us here by the power of your spirit. We know that it's your desire that every ear would hear what your spirit is saying to the church. And we ask now that you would do that very thing, that not one person would leave here without an outpouring of your spirit, strengthening them, baptizing them, refreshing them. In Jesus' name, amen. I entitled my message this morning, Living in a Culture of Grace. And uh, in John, you know that beginning of John, it's sort of unique. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing was created except through the Word. The Word created all things. But then we get down to John chapter 1, verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16 it says, And of his fullness we all receive. Grace for grace, or I like the old King James there, grace upon grace. So we learn here very distinctly that God the creator came into human flesh and the thing above all things was that he would create this culture of grace. Now he would also be speaking the truth after grace, after you got the grace, after you were surrounded in his grace. And from, if you would, that platform of grace, he spoke the truth. And as you look through the Gospels, you'll see this. Like the woman at the well. Jesus comes and just shows this amazing grace to her, this kindness. Hey, would you give me some water? I can't believe you're asking me. If you knew who I was right now, you could ask me. And I would give you a water that would blow your mind. It would gush forth in everlasting life. Just, and then she's thinking, well, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't be saying this. And he just revealed it. I know the truth about you. You've married, been married five times before, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. And she was like, but there was such kindness. There was such grace. There was such hope. There was such salvation. And the whole time, he knew the truth. But I didn't hear about him knowing the truth until I first was pickled, if you would, in this kindness, this grace of God. Now, you know, I'm sort of surprised here. 
Because when we look at other pictures of God in his fullness, so to speak, like Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he, even though he was a righteous prophet, he just said, man, I'm unclean, I'm dirty. I, you know, he was, he was in a very bad place when he saw God, but it was the holiness of God that overwhelmed him. So I wouldn't have been surprised if the Bible said, and of his fullness we all received, holy and holy, right? That would have been consistent. We wouldn't have been surprised about that. We think of John who was with the Lord on earth, but yet in the book of Revelation, when he got a full picture of God in that revelation, he fell down as a dead man. He was a righteous God, a perfect God, a holy God. All these things are true about God. But that is not what Jesus came to declare in human flesh. That's the truth. But that's not what Jesus came to be to overwhelm. So his life and growing up, the time he spent with his apostles, John and 1 John writes, that which we've seen and heard and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, it's exactly the same thing. Now that Jesus isn't here, in human flesh, we still are experiencing that same spirit which he left us in. And what was that? That was grace upon grace. You know, I, I think one of the best ways to explain it is in the love chapter. But not, not as you maybe suppose. In, we see there in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, he says, Love suffers long and is kind. You know, I wonder here if that's really not the full explanation of the agape love. A persistent kindness. You, you know, we see in Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And most commentators say, now what's involved in that love of the fruit of the Spirit is peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, right? Right? I think that's what's happening here. I, I think in essence he's saying that love of God is just a love that suffers long in continual persistence, unstoppable kindness. And if you go on and, and think of that, and as we look in the second part of verse four on down, this unstoppable kindness does not envy, it does not parade itself, it's not puffed up, it doesn't behave rudely, it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, it thinks no evil, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. This unstoppable kindness of God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. His love, that unstoppable kindness of God, never fails. You, you know, you, you have to agree with me on this. Whatever our English word in our American culture means, it's not in the Bible. That when we say love, I mean, typically we think of love is when a couple meets for the first time. Maybe you remember back. I mean, that, that honeymoon period. I remember when I first met my wife, I, I just ate when I was away from her, even if it was for a second. I can remember we were in college, and I can remember you know, it getting so late and, and we're studying, studying. And I just, I don't want to leave her. And I got to go to bed, but I can't leave you. You guys remember that? And, and then, of course, the honeymoon period after the wedding. That's love. That's love. 
And so what happens today after people have been married 10 years? Some guy meets a secretary at work and, and he's like, oh, I found love again. Oh, I don't love my wife anymore. I wish I did, but I just don't. But I found my soulmate and I found love again. And he's basically describing love as that first early on, getting to know the person. It's all brand new and, and I love them. And so I gotta divorce my wife and get this new love because I found it again. I haven't felt this way since I was in high school. They always say that. That's our definition of love. And, and I, I would just simply say, it's not in the Bible. That, that the love we see, it's not just a feeling. I think at times it's a feeling. I, I, I love when our feelings are right in God. How many of you guys didn't feel like coming to church today, but you still came? I mean, I, I think that very rarely do our feelings match up with what we're supposed to do, whether it's taking out the trash or, or seeking God. I, I, I just think that, but again, if there's love, if there's a love for God, I'll have these exciting new feelings. And it's, I just think love is, is in essence, I would say when I, I've had people do me very, very wrong, but yet they'll start with it, I love you. And then they betray you. And, and, and you realize these words, I don't think we understand what they mean anymore. But yet, when somebody's just overwhelmingly kind to me, I feel loved. I, I feel blessed. Whether it's in a restaurant or whether it's in a family situation where I've been a jerk and I'm just overwhelmed with kindness, then I really feel like a jerk, but I, I feel loved. <laughs> I just think it's just love which is a unstoppable kindness, and that's what we see from God. I, I think we see this in a few stories that we know well. You might remember that story back in 2 Samuel chapter 9 with Mephibosheth. Remember, there David had finally secured himself as king. Now, if he was any regular king, his first step would have been to wipe out every relative, third, fourth, fifth cousin of Saul to make sure 20 years down the line when they hit a, a, a valley, a, a downtime in the kingdom, economic difficulty, that some guy didn't say, I'm the right king <laughs> and raise me up and I'll get you out of this economic slump. But David didn't do that. Matter of fact, he did quite the opposite. He said, I need to find somebody of the house of Saul. Interesting. It wasn't just Jonathan, his good friend, but it was Saul, this guy who was unbelievably wicked to him. And David said, I need to seek out this lineage of Saul. Is there anybody left? I don't care how distant of a relative he is. I want to just bless this guy. And, and they said, yeah, there's a, there's a son, but I, I don't think you want him to be around you because it's sort of a bummer. The guy's crippled. You want some crippled guy around you all the time? He can't go to war for you, and we know that's what all leaders have to do is have military abilities. And David said, no, absolutely does not matter. Go get that guy. Now, how did he become lame? We learn in earlier chapters that the nanny who was taking care of Mephibosheth, when she heard that Saul and Jonathan and, and, and all the sons had died, she just freaked out and frantic and picked the boy up and started running and she fell on him. 
and broke, just shattered his legs. They couldn't be fixed after that. It's interesting that her fear was all predicated on what she believed about the nature of the king. And her understanding the nature of David couldn't have been further from the truth. I think a lot of people in the world are running from our king because they don't understand that Jesus came grace upon grace. They've never heard it. They've never experienced it. They've been at churches. They've met Christians. But they've never been overwhelmed by this unstoppable kindness, this this grace upon grace. Maybe they heard the truth, and they're like, I can't handle the truth. (laughs) I don't think any of us can handle the truth without grace first. I mean, God says, I love you. I sent my son to die for you. He rose again, paying for all of your guilt and shame. And you're a sinner. I just told you he's already taken care of it, but you're a sinner. It's already been paid. I'm telling you in advance. I'm going to tell you about your bill, but I want to tell you ahead of time, it's all been paid for. Okay, now I'm going to tell you about the bill. That's, that's how the gospel was to be going out. Paul said in Acts 20, he said, I came to you and I preached the gospel of grace. He says in Acts 20. Well, David got this guy, and then he just went to town. He said, all of, all of King Saul's lands, all of his companies, all of his employees are yours, Mephibosheth. You, not any of the wealth of Saul is lessened. I'll start my own companies and my own lands and my own wealth separately. But guess what? You're never going to need the wealth because I want you to live here in the palace as my own son, and you will never have any need. And it tells us in that story that Mephibosheth continually sat at the king's table and ate as one of David's own sons. Now, now try to wrap your mind around that if you're one of David's councilmen. Imagine when that hits the front page of the newspaper. They're, they're like, I, I don't, it, this doesn't compute. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's not something that's been visible, but yet we know David was a man after God's own heart who did his will, and he showed us this beautiful kingdom of grace upon grace. Another story that we all know well is Luke 15, the prodigal son story, right? I mean, here you've got the most disrespectful son that could ever exist. Hey, Dad, can we have a conversation? Yeah. You're not dying quick enough. And for me to get my hands on my, my inheritance, it's, it's um, I can't wait. I need you. Instead of you're not going to die, just go ahead and let's pretend you died and give me my inheritance in advance. I just can't get worse than that. But as we know the story, he goes off and and he loses it all, and he ends up in the pig pen, wanting to eat the pig's food, afraid he might, might get fired if he doesn't feed it to the pigs, but he eats it himself. And as a Jew, you can't go lower than that. Very unkosher. But there he realizes, my dad's 
a dad of grace. Now, he didn't understand that his dad was a grace upon grace. I, I don't think he'll kick me out. I don't think he'll spit at me in the face. I don't think he'll say, yeah, you made your bed, now lie in it. None of those things. He goes, I know he'll receive me, and my, I'm pretty certain I'll be the lowliest slur, servant in his kingdom, but nevertheless, I'll at least have some decent food to eat. And of course, he's coming home and he had no idea that dad was looking down the road trying to see a silhouette that matched his son every day. The only time we ever see God in a hurry in the entire Bible is here, where he runs towards his son. And he is ready. He doesn't want his son coming into town looking tattered and smelling like a pig and, and everybody in the town to have that information on him. Oh, yeah, he came home, but, man, he was in really bad shape. No, his grace was, I'm going to get out there and get a new robe on him, get some sandals on him, get a ring on him. I want him coming into town. And before he gets here, I don't want anybody to know what a miserable life he made of himself. So when his son comes into town, there he is, looking royal, looking successful. And then the dad says, my son's come home, let's, let's have a feast. And of course, the son tried to get a little speech out. I'm not worthy to be called your son, just ask that you'd make me a slave. And his dad doesn't listen to the speech. He's just weeping and loving on him. And my son who was lost is found. And then has a feast. Now, now the story really develops when we see the older brother. Because this is a guy who is right in all his truth. But he has no kindness in his heart, does he? He, he tells him, the truth is, I've stayed. The truth is, I work hard every day. Here, I didn't even come to the feast because I'm the last guy out there working hard in the field as the sun sets. You've never said, I'm going to have a feast for my faithful son. You've never said, son, go get all your friends, and I'm going to give you guys a big party. But yet, what do we see here? We see a self-righteous heart. And we realize that self-righteous, not true righteous, because he says, this son of yours that went and took all that money and spent it on prostitutes and wild living. Now, how would he know that? They haven't heard from this younger son. How would he know? He didn't know. But his heart was revealed what he would do if he had a bag of money in a foreign country. You see, he, he stayed home and he went through all the exercises, but his heart was not in unity with the father. And his father begs him, just have a little bit of kindness. Just make an appearance in the party. Say hi to him. His father couldn't even get a little bit of grace, a little bit of kindness out of that old brother. And in essence, to say to all of us, are you self-righteous? Or are you always positioned as the father just to have grace upon grace? This is what we see of God, isn't it? Where our sin abounds, what? His grace abounds more. What, what do we all come to? And it tells us in Romans 2 that it's God's loving kindness 
and tender mercies that what? Brought us to repentance. True repentance came. Not when we heard the rapture is going to probably come in this next six months. You better get right. That's true. And sometimes that does provoke people to wake up spiritually. But we truly became followers of Christ when we were overwhelmed with his mercies that are new every morning. Where we realize no matter how low we go, his grace will abound more. What really brought us into wanting him was when we realized there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Even though we see most every day, if not weekly, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, hold it. No, not my body. Just my body, not my spirit. My spirit's born again. But who will save me from this body of death? Paul says in Romans 7, Here's the answer, Jesus Christ. What's the answer? <laughs> Jesus came revealing himself fully, grace upon grace. And that's how we make it. Now, how far deep, how deep does this go? I think we learned that story in the book of Jonah, right? I mean, talking about not doing a very good uh, job search for who would be the best guy to go to Nineveh. I mean, he, God literally picked the absolute worst guy, right? There's nobody that could be less disqualified than this guy, or more disqualified than this guy. We do know from history that the Assyrians had come to that area of Jerusalem, the northern part, excuse me, the northern part of Israel. So it's very possible that Jonah's mom's sisters were raped and killed. Or, I, I don't know, but he, he had personal hatred towards these Ninevites. If you want to know where that is, we know today Iraq, right? I mean, from the last 20 years of personal history, we, a lot of us know we're Baghdad there in Iraq, sort of in the middle. And if you go up north, is a town called Mosul, the stronghold of ISIS. And there in Mosul were mostly Christians. And right above the top of the hill was the tomb of Jonah. Every year they had a parade called the Parade of Jonah. And they would remember that God sent Jonah to bring salvation to them. But of course now, if they escaped, they found refuge in the United States or they've been murdered. It's, it's, it's horrendous how wicked those Ninevites have become again. <laughs> but we know Jonah was going to go the opposite direction. God predestined ahead of time a big fish that could swallow him up and, and, and bring him to say, okay, it's better to go to Nineveh than to suffer here in this fish. He comes out of the fish, he goes to Nineveh, and he says, I've got to preach, but I want to say, I, I want to preach the worst sermon I can preach. Minimum 40 days comes destruction, that's it. That's the whole sermon. I can walk really fast. I can get from one end to the other end in three days. Now, if you're ever worried about, 
well, I don't share the Lord because I just am not very good at it. Well, if you tried to be really bad at it and said just a little bit of truth, we know that people probably would get saved. That the reason we're sharing our faith or not sharing our faith, it's, it's really not about how adequate you are. God's spirit is in the world already in advance, convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And all you gotta do is smile with your Christian shirt on. Or, or just say Jesus loves you. Or just one verse out of the Bible. Hey sir, Jesus wept. Get in your car and drive away. You'll see salvation happening. It's really not that dependent on you, is it? It's just do it. Open your mouth. Well, here Jonah, we know, went up on the hill and he was angry. He was so mad because what he thought would happen, happened. We learn in Jonah chapter 4, in verse 1 and 2, it says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know. Now notice here Jonah is saying, I know you, and I know the first thing about you, the most important thing about you, the biggest thing about you, the thing that, that encompasses more of your nature of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is this. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. Jonah said, knowing God, who is grace upon grace, I knew that just my presence being there, and I knew it wouldn't take much that God's position is just to shower grace on them at any little inkling. I knew by me going there, the odds were in their favor <laughs> that God's grace would be the thing that shined over these people that were uniquely wicked on the earth. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroyed that with fire. This was going to be the second and the only civilization of all the history that it would happen to. But it didn't happen because God's grace was so powerful. Now, let me just stop here and say, if God's grace is that way towards the wicked of the wicked of the wicked on the earth, what do you think God's grace is towards us? Who as weakly or as fumbling around as we might be are trying to follow the Lord, obey the Lord. And often the willing is present, but how to obey is not there. How much more God's grace is towards us. Another story I want to tell, how deep does this go? It's Psalms 106. And in Psalms 106, the psalmist is pointing out that, that for a long period of time in Israel, that they served the idols and in Psalm 37, it said, not only did they serve these pagan gods, but they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Whoa. Shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So I'm talking to you people who took your brand new little 
babies, a month old, three months old, and you went and you saw them burned to death in the arms of an idol to the gods of Dagon and Moloch and the Asherahs. Years ago, when I was in college, I was working the cash register, and a guy came in, and he, he this is back in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, he looked just like a mafia guy out of the movies from New York. I mean, he looked like a New Yorker in San Diego, which we sort of dress the way you guys dress here in Hawaii. And I said, oh, hey, what about the Hal Lindsey book over there? Who's that, you know? Well, he's called The Great Late Planet Earth. Why don't you read that? And, and, and I told him that it's about a prophecy of the coming of the Lord. And, and he said, oh, yeah, I don't want to read anything about God because I, I'm definitely going to hell. And I said, sir, there, there's no sin that Christ can't forgive. He said, you have no idea how many deep sin. You, you, I could blow your mind how wicked I am. And I said, sir, it doesn't matter how numerous. It doesn't matter how deep. Christ on the cross paid for sins to the depths of the depths. And I'm like, sir, you, you can receive Christ right now. And this guy's face changed. And he looked at me, he goes, you have no idea who you're talking to. And if you say one more word about it, you won't be living. And there was such a darkness on this guy. I don't remember exact words, but I just remembered that this, this guy is, is living in a unique, deep, dark, illegal, criminal life. And, and he has done so many wicked things that he... He wouldn't even respect a God who would forgive him, I guess, in a sense. Well, since then, I've read Psalm 106. And I've had people tell me that. Oh, you don't know who I am. There's no hope for me. And I look at him now, and I'm going, did you take a brand new baby and sacrifice it to demons, burning it to death? And they look at me going, what? No, I didn't do anything like that. Are you nuts? Oh, okay, because if you did, God would forgive it. <laughs> did you do anything that bad? Well, no, nothing that bad. Oh, okay, then we, we happen to see in Psalm 106, verse 43, many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in his counsel. They brought low in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. He heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. In essence, God said they didn't even know who God was. <laughs> they didn't remember who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was. But he came and reminded them. And after he re reminded them their covenant, then he kept his covenant of showing mercy upon them. It starts with this grace. The gospel of grace, Paul called it. We know it starts in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We know those verses. By grace, we've been saved through faith, not of ourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's faith in the grace. If you're here today asking, am I really saved? Do, do I really know the Lord? I, I struggle a lot. I don't look like a Christian a lot. I say a lot of things. I do a lot of things that would shock some people here. I hit it well. But 
when I'm alone and I'm quiet, I'm wondering if the Lord were to come today, would I even go to heaven? Well, it's this question here. Do you have faith in the grace of God? In specific, do you have faith in his kindness that he would pay for all your sins on the cross? Can you have faith that in God is so kind, he is so merciful that he would pay for every one of your sins, wiping them out of the way, casting them into the deepest sea, scattering them as far as the east is to the west to be remembered no more. And do you believe that God, now it tells us in Romans 1, faith to faith. You start with having faith in his grace. A week into it, you're failing miserably. It's like, I don't even think I was this bad of a Christian when I was a non-Christian. And then you're living, doing good for a few months, and then you fall, and you're just like, oh, my goodness. Surely, I'm done with me. I can't stand me. Surely, God can't stand me. And you have to have faith that God's kindness is greater than any human kindness has ever been seen. That God's mercies, if you were to take the most merciful man that ever lived on the planet, that God's mercies are a zillion light years higher than that one man's mercies. And we're going to have faith in a grace we can't understand. Interesting, in Ephesians 2, it says we are going to be seated, seated with Christ in heavenly places, and throughout the ages, we're going to be learning of the riches of his grace in his kindness. Isn't that radical? Do you have faith in God's grace? Remember the thief on the cross? I always find this interesting that there's two thieves. I mean, the odds are there would be like one thief and one murderer, right? But to have two thieves that were so incorrigible that didn't matter how many times you beat them or how long you put them in jail, the moment they got out, they were going to steal again. So they're just like, we got to kill these guys. I mean, you don't typically kill thieves. But these guys were really bad. And it's interesting, both of them were mocking the Lord. As the Lord's walking along and getting his beard pulled out and it spit upon him. And then they, on the cross, if you look at the Gospels, even they're hanging, they're moments away from their own death, and they have the energy to mock Jesus. I mean, this is, this is pretty hard-hearted. But then one of them realizes, as they hear Jesus speaking. What is it he hears? Not, I'm in so much pain, I can't believe this, mom, I'm hurting. You know, his whole, his whole hurt, his whole concept was, John, take care of mom. Father, forgive them all, they don't know what they're doing. If you look at the saints of Jesus, they were full of grace and kindness. And this one thief looks at this and, and says, even though I've been mocking him, even though I've spent my whole life being no good and completely unfruitful, I have faith that this guy, even though I've done all of that in these last few hours, even though I spent my whole life the way I've spent my whole life, that he would still forgive me. Tremendous faith. Jesus if you look at all the Gospels, he says, Lord, remember me when? Future tense. 
you come into your kingdom. What's it say in Romans 10? If you believe Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Jesus looked at him. Yeah, you'd like that. <laughs> yeah. Sure, I don't think we're compatible. No, what do we hear from Jesus? Just today, you'll be with me in paradise. His feet were tied, his hands were tied. There was no good works this guy could ever do. It doesn't matter because we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by having faith in the grace of God. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. Can you have that kind of faith that neither depth nor height nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come will separate you from the love of God? If you can have that kind of faith, then you are saved. And if you've come to Christ on any other way, then, then I, would, I would question whether you're having a Christian experience or whether you're just grinding out religion. <laughs> I'm here at church because I want to get blackballed by God. I read my Bible because I don't want to get left behind. You see, God can only receive a relationship with you if it's out of the genuine love of your heart with zero fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. It's just a genuine response. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say my wife came to me years ago and, and she said, you know what? I am on the verge of divorcing you because you're a lazy bum. And unless you start telling me five times a day you love me, start helping keeping this house clean, and start helping out more with the kids, we're done. And I'm like, I know I'm a lazy bum. And I said, okay, man, I gotta get, I get my book out and I put down five uh, boxes next to I love you, I love you, I love you, you know, and, and man, I, I am on it. I get home, honey, I love you. I'm helping with the kids, I'm cleaning the house. I go out and get her some flowers, I love you. And this goes on for a week and Saturday morning she has some of her friends over for whatever you girls do, tea and crumpets or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> And I, and I walk into the living room with her and her friends, and I, and I say, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Honey, I love you. And then I go off and start helping clean the house, and they're observing this, and I'm playing with the kids. And, and I come in and interrupt again and say, and I love you. And the ladies are going, you, you've got a husband who loves you more than any husband I've ever seen. He, you got the best husband you've ever had. You must, you must have incredible joy in your wonderful marriage. Does she? No. Because she's like, yeah, you, you hear him saying he loves me. You see him helping out. But it's all based on, I've got a bat over his head. I'm getting ready to hit him with if he doesn't do those things. So can she receive it as a joyful, healthy relationship? She can't, can't she? So in the same with God, if there's anything in there that, that says that you're doing what you're doing because if you're afraid if you don't, you're, it's not going to end up well for you at the end, then, then God can't receive that. There's no joy in, his, in this relationship. Another analogy. 
Let's say I adopted this eight-year-old boy. And we finally bring him home after months of money being spent and lawyers and visiting him. And we finally bring him home and we say, hey, you're our son. This is your brothers and sisters. This is your family. You have no idea how joyful we are to have you here. And we show him his room. This is your room. That's your bed. Here's some toys. Here's your thing. And the first night he's there with us. We're eating dinner, and he's just perfect manners. And, and would you like some more? No, no, I don't, I don't want to eat that much. Somebody else might need it. And then in, we're wrapping up the dinner. He jumps up and starts cleaning off the table and washing all the dishes. And, and we're like, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to do that. All the kids are outside playing. Why don't you go play? No, 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 I want to help here. And, and then he's asking where the vacuum is. He wakes up every morning, and he makes his bed perfectly. Make sure he doesn't make a mess in the bathroom. And then Saturday comes around and the kids are playing. He's like, hey, Dad, can, can I get you some potato chips while you're watching football? No, no, I'm fine. Can, can I cut up some vegetables for you? No, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'll, I'll get you a drink. No, I, I, I'm, I'm good. Come here, why don't you go play? I know you're eight years old. All the other kids are out playing. Nope, I want to be with you, Dad. I'm going to sit right here. I mean, wouldn't there be a point where it just starts breaking your heart. And there, the first day after school, you hear this knock at the door, and there he is. May I come in? The door's unlocked. What, what are you knocking? This is your house. Well, I, I just didn't want to presume. And then the next day, he knocks at the door. May I come in? I mean, isn't there a point where you take his little face and you, you look at him and say, Listen, you are our child. And I can tell in you is this fear that you, we're going to reject you. That six months down the road, we're going to be upset that we adopted you. And, and, and you're going to start acting in, in ways that, that we just say, man, we, we want to undo this adoption. And, and, we're, and you're so afraid of that. But yet, what? I, I can't tell him what. In essence, we're saying we can't stand seeing you in this torment. We're not enjoying this relationship with you, not because you're not a perfect little child. You are, but you can't. You're not having faith in our goodness. You're not having faith that we really love you and adopted you and want you, and you are an equal share with all your brothers and sisters. Imagine that. And this is what we're talking about in understanding the culture of grace. When Cheryl and I do marriage counseling, that's the first thing we establish. They want to tell us about what they're upset about. Now we need to change that guy. And, and now we need to get her to nag less. And it usually comes out to they're just not having grace towards one another. And if you can just understand to just have this kindness most of the time, people are not upset about the sins of a spouse. They're just upset about their humanness. You know? Ah, oh, my wife, she makes me wait. I'm always having to wait for her. Sorry, ladies. You ladies are looking at me like, it's not true. That's the other thing about ladies. They're late all the time, and they tell you that's not true. And, and you're looking at the guy, and you're going, 
Yeah. Well, change that. Like, this is, this is human nature. And then there's bad stuff about the guys. I can't think of anything right now. But, but, but she's upset about some human element, and, and we're going, you married a human. I'm sorry. And guess what? After you're born again, you're still in this human suit. And we're all grieved about being in this human suit. We want to get rid of this human suit, and then it's a brand new born-again spirit living in a body that is in the same mind, in the same frame, with the same heart, forever with the Lord. But until that time, and I would say, you know, this sort of marks the Jesus movement. There was a love in the Jesus movement, but I would just say it was grace. We, we just didn't get bummed about human things. If, if some guy said he was going to pick you up and he was an hour late, you weren't sitting there going, oh, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind once he gets here. You were reading your Bible, you are playing your guitar, you are seeing who you could witness to. And then the guy shows up, he doesn't even say, hey, I'm sorry I'm late. He just assumes, I'm in the spirit, you're in the spirit, we're all in God's perfect timing. And he'd say, man, I was stuck in traffic, but I had the most radical time of prayer I've ever had. And I'm like, yeah, man, me too. Man, I saw this verse while I was sitting there waiting for you. I saw this verse right here. There, 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 nobody even thought anybody was going to be irritated at each other. We were just all so spiritually minded and just walking in the grace. We, the human stuff didn't anger us. It didn't bother us. We were, we were just, man, grace upon grace. Kindness, unstoppable kindness and unstoppable gentleness. Well, so much more I could say on this, but I'll end at this point. In Revelation, the very last verse of the Bible, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, you have the last words, right? You're always, what's the last words they said? What's the last words Einstein said? What's the last words Caesar said? What's the last words that Abraham Lincoln said? And it's sort of like, I have one more breath. And, and so it's going to, everything's going to get weeded out. And there's just this final statement that covers everything far and beyond, right? And this is Jesus' final statement in a Bible that started thousands of years earlier. It was now coming to an end. We see the beginning of creation and we see the last of the last days on planet Earth. And he finally is going to wrap it all up. A lot of things he could have said. But the final word from our Lord Jesus Christ was just this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and of his fullness we all received. Grace and then upon grace, more grace still. May that be upon you all. And that Calvary Chapel, West Oahu, is known as the church of just grace and unstoppable kindness that thinks no evil, that has no rude word to say, that, that only has patience, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
we're looking at the grace of our Lord Jesus for salvation. And we need to preach the gospel of grace to the world. And we now need to be, if you would, a petri dish here <laughs> of grace upon grace growing. And if somebody walks in that door, they're not going to see people irritated about a bunch of human stuff or even human failure and sin. They're just seeing a group of people that just has nothing where the sin abounds, grace abounds more, right? Lord, thank you for your word today. And Lord, we want to have faith in you. And there may be some here today who are, are thinking, man, I, I'm trying to follow the Lord and I'm failing. I'm getting angry about trying to be a Christian because I'm just not doing what all these other Christians do. And Lord, today, just bring them to the true saving faith into a true relationship with you where we come we're all the prodigal son we all have been bitter like jonah we all have fallen seven times but your grace is what's going to get us up seven times lord we hate sometimes the valley of sin we're in there's so much pain so much sorrow we reap what we sow and it often is just devastating and we've all been ripped and torn and tattered by our human flesh, our sinful desires, our struggles that we daily have, the things we don't want to do, we do, the things we do want to do, we don't do. Oh, thanks be through Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no condemnation. Lord, we want to come to you today. And as you're here today, and if you haven't come to Christ right now, just say, Lord, just like the thief on the cross. It doesn't have to be a great prayer. It's just one revealing that you believe Jesus is Lord and that out of love and kindness and mercy and grace, he took all your sins and paid the penalty in his own body, horribly tortured, bleeding and dying, and that the life is in the blood that through his blood that was shed for you, when he rose again, he conquered your sin. He conquered hell. He conquered your judgment. That now his perfect love he has for you should cast out all fear, all thoughts of judgment. That now is his child to have faith and to rest in his house, to have faith that this home is my home. That no matter what I end up with, <laughs> That his grace is there, that daily we can come to that throne room of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Lord, we have faith in you now. Lord, change us here. Change our way of thinking. Change our hearts. If there's something deep you're doing in us today that I can't see it, but yet we perceive it by the Spirit, we ask for more and more and more. In Jesus' precious name. Thank you, Pastor Brown.